Everyone, once they pass the age of 60, becomes a historian. If they've lived a statistically normal life, they will have had children. And if their children have lived a statistically normal life, they will have given them grandchildren. Ex officio, you become the custodian of your family's history, and beyond that, the primary source for the young'un's curiosity about what it was like when you were their age. But one of the dilemmas of growing older is how do you disentangle your ever-accruing personal history from the history of your times? How do you judge what actions you took that changed the course of your life, and what events outside your control shaped your destiny? And how do you tell the kids? Anyway, I've not led a statistically normal life, but I am a historian, and as a journalist have been an observer of history as it was forged in blood and death. One way in which I am normal is that the older I get, the more I prefer to look back, and I spend a lot of time trying to be objective about the turning points, the forces outside my home, beyond the control of parents, that changed the circumstances of society and sent all the lives of people my age in a different direction. For some generations, these historical turning points are obvious. August 1914, world turning point. September 1939, or December 7, 1941, for Americans, world turning point. But for those of us born in the late 40s through early 50s, there is no particular date. An era of progress gave way to an era of reaction, one we are still living through. And as I puzzle out when the change began, I find it difficult to separate out my own personal story from the deep channel of historical narrative I want to tell you about. For example, I keep remembering a conversation, well, a fragment of one. It's a late summer evening in 1982, and the night train from Paris to Rome has just pulled out of the Gare de Lyon. I was supposed to meet a colleague, friend of my then-girlfriend, on the train, had no idea what she looked like, but we found each other almost instantly in the corridor of the wagon we have by chance thrown our bags in. As my girlfriend promised, we get on with each other instantly. It's the kind of train that has all but disappeared in our TGV world. Compartments for six, sliding doors, windows along the corridor that open a smidge at the top to let in the hot air of the countryside. The friend's name was Vicky, English, working at the International Herald Tribune, we stood downwind of one of the open windows. Like I said, we got on instantly and famously. We quickly found our way to the subject of the way our lives had turned out and our surprise that we were regularly employed and living in a world where Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher ran our countries, something we would have thought inconceivable when we were at university not quite a decade earlier. The paradigm had shifted, but when? How? Vicky must have posed the question, my answer was instantaneous. October 1973. She nodded and continued the thought. That's right. October 1973 is to our generation what August 1914 was to the Edwardians. I hadn't thought of that comparison, but she was right. That interchange and the scene in which it played out has stayed with me all these decades. The old train sounds clacking through the window, wheels clattering over tracks laid decades earlier, the dopplering rush of sound as we passed in and out of villages, a strip of purple at the horizon as the very last light of the day disappeared. October 1973, the whole autumn of 1973, for us, was when the world changed. 
although like members of the British Expeditionary Force heading for France in the autumn of 1914 and who thought they'd be home by Christmas, we didn't realize just how severe the shock was at the time. And it was severe, but not stop the world in its tracks severe, like the wars that shaped my father and grandfather's life. Severe, but subtle. Almost all studies of economic inequality since World War II make 1973 the before or after point. Before was the greatest growth in income and living standards in history. Since then, except for the privileged few, a terrible stagnation. But what caused the change? The events of this autumn, 40 years ago, the Yom Kippur War, Ramadan War, October War, whatever you want to call it, and the oil embargo by Arab nations that followed it, in the space of 90 days, the price of oil quadrupled, destroying the post-war economy. That simple? No, something was changing already that autumn. In the space of a little over a month, there was the violent overthrow of the Chilean government of Salvador Allende, the war, the embargo, and President Nixon's Saturday night massacre. The response to each of those events showed how much was changing already. But again, it's hard to disentangle personal history from actual historical events. At the start of that sequence, in the middle of September, I was living in London, room-sitting in a group flat at South End Green in Hampstead. I wasn't a journalist yet. I was just another recent graduate stumbling around in a post-bachelor's degree haze. But I had made a critical decision. I would not pursue an academic career. What I would do for a living was yet to be decided not so different from many of today's recent graduates, except then it was a matter of limitless choice, and today the uncertainty over career is because there are no jobs. I was enmeshed in myself, and so missed the first of the big news events, the military coup against the democratically elected socialist government of Salvador Allende in Chile, but others seemed to miss it as well. Even in the era when news was not available 24-7, reaction to major news events still happened pretty quickly. But when Allende was overthrown, there was very little protest. That is why I say things were already changing. In that time of upheaval and hope, the death of Allende and the imposition of martial law in Chile should have sparked huge protests, certainly in the U.S. It did not. Even now it's a surprise, because Chile was a country young Americans knew well. We knew it because of My Weekly Reader. For Americans of a certain age, my age, My Weekly Reader is the first place we learned about the world. It was a news weekly aimed squarely at schoolchildren. By the time I was in year six, it had a circulation of over 4.2 million. My Weekly Reader told us about news in foreign lands and the things the American government was doing to help. Latin America featured heavily. It was the time of the Alliance for Progress, President Kennedy's signature policy in the region. With U.S. help, the continent would, in Kennedy's words, complete the revolution of the Americas. Living standards would rise. The curse of military coups and dictatorships would be banished by democracy built on increasing prosperity and literacy. Chile featured frequently in my weekly reader. It was held up as a beacon of democratic society in a continent beset by dictatorship. Our 11-year-old brains understood implicitly that Chileans were just like us. Chile was free. Its president, of Swiss-German ancestry, was even named Fry. It was comparatively prosperous and, most important, truly democratic. 
I was well into my university years when the ultimate proof of Chile's democracy was demonstrated. Salvador Allende was elected president. It was a three-way race, rather like the last British election. Allende socialists won a plurality of the votes, around 35%. In Britain, the conservatives won around 36% of the vote. In a runoff vote held in Parliament, Allende was declared the clear winner. Then, on September 11, 1973, that democracy was snuffed out. Allende was killed, or killed himself. The roundups, torture and summary executions began immediately. Britons and Americans were among the victims. And nothing happened. Nothing. Maybe it was because the news only drifted to the northern hemisphere in fits and starts. There was very little visual imagery, and the newspaper reports were vague. Some people reported killed. No, a thousand reported killed. No, ninety. No, no deaths reported. Maybe there was no reaction because Latin America exists as an afterthought for most people in North America and the UK. Maybe the reaction was weak because the Kent State shootings had affected the collective subconscious, at least in the U.S. Certainly those who still protested the Vietnam War were genuine left-wing radicals. The broader coalition against the conflict did not want to get too involved with socialist politics and possibly were not really willing to get shot for their beliefs. Or maybe there were just a lot of people in the same in-between place I was, confronted for the first time with the necessity of making a living and, in a wider sense, just growing up. Maybe that is where the personal and the historical intersect. Historians look at economic and political and military events, but rarely look at unavoidable things like growing up and maturing. The collective putting away of childish things is also a potent force of history. Chile caused me to put away my childish worldview, the one shaped in considerable part by my weekly reader, although it didn't happen immediately. Chile was free and democratic, just like the U.S., and its voters had chosen a socialist freely and democratically. As the years went by, it became clear that Allende's overthrow had been aided and abetted by the Nixon administration. Not a surprise, but still a shock. The fact that there were no mass rallies remains a puzzle, although by then, the left in the U.S., which provided a lot of the organizational energy for the anti-war movement, was doing what leftists have done for almost two centuries when the tide goes out, fight amongst themselves. When I told my new friend Vicky on the train from Paris to Rome that October 1973 was when our world changed, included in that thought was the absence of reaction to Allende's overthrow, the coup could not have been undone, but perhaps more pressure could have been brought on the U.S. government to make sure that the massive abuse of people, people I had learned from my weekly reader who were just like us, was stopped. The whole world is watching, was a chant of the late 60s. It doesn't prevent political evil, but it can ameliorate its effects. At the time of that train journey, I was just a beginner in journalism, when I became more established, I was able to try and make amends. I made an hour-long radio documentary on London's Medical Foundation for the care of victims of torture. The first person treated there was Luis Munoz, a Chilean trade union activist arrested in the early days after the coup. His pregnant wife was murdered, and he was brutally tortured for months by the Pinochet regime. You cannot believe the sound you make. You cannot believe a human being can make these sounds he told me.
Although I was three decades late, it was still important to get his story to the world. Chile, a place I have never been, remains a key signpost in my life. It wasn't just because of my weekly reader. The great Latin American literature boom was a trend of university life in the late 60s and early 70s. One of my teachers, the Scottish poet Alistair Reed, had been an early translator of the Chilean Nobel laureate Pablo Neruda. My memory is the news of Neruda's death, two weeks after Allende's, hit me harder. I still write about those days, and the Nixon administration's unforgivable role in democracy's demise in Chile, and I read Neruda, one poem in particular, Nothing But Death. It's a youthful work, but it prophesies his country's fate, and if you listen closely, it is a prophetic elegy for the generation whose world was changing irrevocably in the autumn of 1973. There are cemeteries that are lonely, graves full of bones that do not make a sound, the heart moving through a tunnel, in it darkness, darkness, darkness. We think of historical changes as only those things that happen directly to us. But sometimes, as in autumn 1973, the change takes place on the other side of the equator, its meaning only to be understood a decade later, talking to a new friend, riding in a train rumbling through the night, or telling a story in a radio studio, soundproofed and silent. <laughs> 